Welcome to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Justin Buttigieg is best known for being the husband of former Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg. Justin grew up in Traverse City, Michigan, where he found life as a gay teenager difficult. He's written a memoir about his experiences called I Have Something to Tell You. Chaston appeared at a virtual National Writer Series event and spoke with writer and acupuncturist Elon Cameron. Elon asked Chaston if he wanted to tell everyone who's growing up in a difficult situation that it's going to be okay. You know, um, it's going to be okay if other people commit to making it okay for you. Um, there's only so much you can do for yourself. And yes, there was a lot of shame and darkness and sadness in that book. But the reason I'm here today, the reason I survived, the reason I made it out, the reason I am who I am today is because other people rolled up their sleeves and did the work for me as well. So my, I ran away from home. My parents called me home. My parents didn't have any of the answers but wanted to make a safe space for me. They were terrified for me, but they didn't give up on me. I came out to friends, lost some, and then other friends um, made more space for me. And, you know, I, I went through college, finally found a mentor who, who picked me up and, and said, I see what's going on here. I'm going to fight for you too. And all along the way, it's been other people showing up to help. And that is the job of allies. It's, it's all of our jobs because we all have to be allies to, to everyone around us. But it wasn't just like grit and determination, right? I didn't write a book that was like, and I picked myself up by the bootstraps and everything's great, you know? It's a story about other people taking chances on, on you and other people giving you agency and space to be yourself. That way I could come into my own being, right? The way I could be myself, that way I could ultimately be loved by the person who, who loves me the most. And it will be okay because, I mean, especially when I come home to Trevor City and I walk down Front Street and I have goosebumps because there's rainbow colors on Front Street, right? And that's not that's not because like Traverse City West grad Chastin Buddha Judge like ran for president with his husband and made Traverse City better. That's because people here in Traverse City made it better. That's because people were, were here committed to the work. Well, we founded Up North Pride in 2014, and I read that portion of your book to my spouse tearfully, <laughs> just because we moved back here and knew that it was a necessity. So I love the fact that your story is a success story and is one of celebration and is one of, it's not a story of someone who met life's challenges and then said, okay, I'm going to lay down and give up. But I do think that it's also interesting, you know, that here we are in this town that uh, both of us graduated from high school. I graduated from high school much earlier than you, my fine young man friend. And it was very difficult to be queer in Traverse City then. You know, I graduated in 1991. And uh, I think even the changes that have happened since you graduated have been really notable. But it is a challenge to us as adults and as citizens to be aware of the needs of people who have fewer resources. And I think that's sort of what you're saying is like a lot of your success comes from people who had more privilege than you did kind of sticking their necks out for you. Yeah, absolutely. And then when we realize that we have privilege, right. In any different ways, then it's, then it's our job to turn around and yeah, turn around and stick our necks out for other people. And, and part of growing up in Traverse city was, 
like I write in the book, I was so concerned about my specific struggle, my reality, my lived experience. I was only focused on, I mean, we can give ourselves a little bit of, you know, credit. We were teenagers, but my struggle, it is hard being queer. Nobody loves me. The world seems crushing. And I never had to examine the world outside of the bubble of Traverse City, Michigan. Mm. And even the smaller bubble that I was living in inside the bubble of Traverse City, Michigan, you know, and where I, I got to go away, I went to college, I went to grad school and, and taught in bigger cities and had a multitude of lived experiences. And sometimes when I come back into the bubble and like smaller bubbles inside the bigger bubble, you realize that some people still aren't, aren't there because they don't realize what you just said, that they might have to turn around and stick their neck out for somebody else. Right. because of the very privileged bubble that they're operating in. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting in your book, you talk a lot about all of the different factions of Americans that you, you interfaced with and the different ways that that changed you. I wonder if there, there's anything that kind of coming home, having published your memoir that is like glaringly obvious from the campaign trail or something that really that just comes with you every day like something that you think of every day you're just like oh that was the thing that I I had to write down you mean about Traverse City in general well about Traverse City or yeah from your adventures (laughs) well I guess what I'm thinking a lot about is oh boy you just like slid a soapbox out for me to stand on please stand on it we want (laughs) we want you here I went out there and I I just once I got past all the, you know, worries I had about like, who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to wear? Am I too gay, not gay enough? Like, are people going to hate me? Are people going to like, once I just like let all that go right. and focus squarely on the people in front of me and how I can make their lives better or, or even just show up for them. I realized like in these like 4-H halls in the middle of Iowa, um, you know, in the winter, people are showing up in their boots mm-hmm. and they're listening to my husband talk about how he's going to make their life better. And I remember vividly like watching the conversations happen in front of me, right? Like farmers are asking about soy and corn and how he's going to protect small, small farms and family farms. And teachers are worried about the classroom and moms uh, demand volunteers are showing up asking about gun violence. And we're having these like real world lived experience conversations about how politics makes our life better or worse. And then I'm scrolling through Twitter in the back of the room, right? And Twitter's like, this politician said this. And like, Pete did a fundraiser in a wine cave. And then like, I know he's going to go to the press gaggle the moment he ends that speech and all they're going to talk about in Twitter drama. And like he said, she said, and that's like the media ecosystem we're operating in. And I'm out there having real conversations with people about how my husband is going to make their life better in Washington. And I think about that when I come home yeah. and I see people lamenting about their neighbors flying a Trump flag or their neighbors not being able to have a civil conversation or lamenting about what the city is and isn't yet. And I think about how the way we change those dynamics is not arguing with one another on social media. Cause when you're on social media, you're just talking at one another. You're not talking with one another. Yeah. If you really want to like do the work, if you really want to push this community forward, then you might have to start talking to your aunt at Thanksgiving who, you know, has some pretty weird opinions about, you know, politics in general. You might have to have a conversation with your son's teacher who keeps saying maybe racist, bigoted, homophobic things in the classroom. That's how you 
uh, cause progress, not just by like retweeting an article and like getting mad online. And so I've been thinking about that as we've been spending more time um, in Michigan. I've been spending a lot of time here walking around the community and talking to people about politics. And the, the one thing I keep telling people is, who are you talking to? Because if you're going home, like, like Twitter, Twitter activism, Twitterism, that's not going to do it. That's not going to win you an election. So I'm just, I hope that people think about in, in, in a multitude of ways. Mm -hmm. Do I want to push my community forward? Do I want to win this election, et cetera, et cetera. It's mm -hmm. going to come down to the conversations that you're willing to get comfortable being uncomfortable having. Yeah. Well, and that leads kind of interestingly and hopefully not too uncomfortably into like, how are things with you and your family since the book has come out? Great. The thing that I love about my parents and my family in general is, and I wrote about it in the book because I think it's important. It, they are a, they are a masterclass in hope for people just trying to get it right. That's awesome. And when I came out, they didn't have the answers, um, but they had a lot of questions. And the thing is like, I get to run away from Traverse City and come back, right? And they live here. This is where their business is. This is where their home is. This is where our family is. Mm -hmm. And they're still here operating in that same bubble that I, I so desperately wanted to leave. And now I so desperately want to be back in. But they continuously show up and have the hard conversations. And I think growing up here, you know, the way we sort of operated was like, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about, you know, politics, you don't, you like keep all your emotions locked up right here, right? And like, as John Mulaney says, like, and then one day you'll die. And like, that's it. Like, we don't talk about our feelings at all. And then, you know, things changed and I, and I shattered expectations for my family. And we keep having those conversations and we can keep coming back to the table, having uncomfortable conversations because we know that we love one another and we know that's the way we, we learn and unlearn and progress. Is there anything that the media has reported about you or about your family that you wish you could kind of set correct? I mean, I'd have to go open a bottle of wine and we can go an hour. Um, <laughs> You're like, no. well, then there was the time they said that I was a blonde. <laughs> I remember one time they said I was a millionaire and I was like, that'd be nice. Me and all my student debt. Um, Would be great. The only thing that really uh, irked me that I think if, if anyone's watching and they didn't know was my parents never kicked me out. Right. Um, and I see people try to retell that story. And, and in a way, I know they're trying to empathize with me and they're trying to say, you know, well, look at what has happened since. But I, it's very important for me especially it's very important because I know my parents still live here and lots of people know who they are and they want to have conversations with them and they're probably watching this they are watching right now yeah it's probably like the Super Bowl over at their Hi, house <laughs> my parents never kicked me out yeah. I ran away from I ran because the culture I was growing up in and the things that I was hearing and learning from other people even people in social circles around my family and at school told me that I was disgusting it told me that I was broken and that I didn't belong. And this was also at the time of Matthew Shepard. Right. And I thought, I, I sort of like felt it in my bones that if I come out, not only will I be a disgrace to my family, my family will lose friends. Did you feel like you would be a danger to them by coming out? Not a danger to them. I felt like if I came out, some of the people that I had grown up around mm -hmm. might do something bad to me. Yeah. And it was a deep sense of shame that pushed me away. So I never, I think it's because that we're very used to sort of 
reading the story of like the parents kick the kid out and the kid runs away and the kid becomes a Broadway star, right? Like that's, that's like the hallmark. That was your plan movie. though, right? <laughs> Still could happen. Wouldn't that be nice? But that's I mean, not how life, how the story went. And in your book, you say very clearly, like I wasn't unwelcome there. I was just afraid and I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's so much to that. I mean, if, if we lived in a world that was more openly accepting that that was the norm, which, you know, from my mouth to God's ear, but um, there would be a sense of coming out to your parents that would just be like, oh, I informed them of a thing, you know? Yeah, my, well, that's the thing. My parents didn't even have the vocabulary for it. Right. And when some of those early conversations were really awkward because it was like, well, here's the only few things we know about being gay, right? right. But at least we had Great them. Devil hell. Right? I mean, we, we had them. We had those conversations. And now, I mean, it's like we said at the beginning, it's so important for parents to, and I know it can be uncomfortable, and we have to do this for our friends to say, this is going to be uncomfortable. I love you very much. And if there's ever anything you want to tell me about who you are or what you believe, I'm here for you. And I will always be here for you. And I will always love you. And I will always be your parent. And that will save kids' lives because I grew up for 18 years thinking I'm going to be the biggest disappointment and fear right. for my parents. Like when they uh, find out, like everything's fine right now, but when they find out, right? Correct. Well, what a delight it's been to watch you and your mom on your Instagram stories. Thank you. Was there, I know that Pete has a book coming out in the fall. There's this cute image in my head of the two of you with like desks facing each other, kind of like playing some like, you know, virtual game of who finishes their book first. Did you spend any of your time writing your book together? I wrote most of, I mean, the <laughs> no, I did mine first. So privilege to have during the isolation is space, right? I, I made a little office upstairs. He had one downstairs. And so when he wrote his first book, he never shared the chapter about me and I never shared the chapter about him. But beyond mm -hmm. that, I really needed his help because I'm still sort of a political newbie. So <laughs> right. everyone was reading the book, you know, the legal team was reading the book and, you know, the okay. political team's reading the book. And so there was nothing hidden that came out in your book that you're, you're like, already there'd been 50 people who I, read it. There's been, a, I mean, there were a lot of opinions, but I said, you know, I'm, I'm writing the book I want to write. And thank God that Pete was like, write that book because, oh. you know, that people don't write books like that in politics. Right. And, you know, people had some strong opinions about what you should share and what you shouldn't share. Mm -hmm. But Pete was very helpful towards the end when I, you know, finally said, okay, I think this is it, you know, and, and he, there were a couple times where he was, he would say, this isn't complete. This isn't even close to complete because I know you have more to say about this. And then also, I didn't want to write a burn book. You know, this right. book isn't about dragging people through the mud and, and making people feel bad about anything. I Yourself, I would say, because I feel like there's a way that you could kind of take some of your past and be pretty, you know, self-deprecating with it. Oh, for sure. I, I just wanted, and, and Pete was very helpful with this. Good. I want the reader to feel what I was feeling. I don't want the reader to focus on the person that caused the pain. I want them to feel the pain with me. And mm. all I want them to focus on is the thing that I was feeling and not the person who caused those feelings, if that makes sense. I think you really succeeded, Chastin. I think it's a really, it's a beautiful book. It's very accessible. You're generous with your audience. It's very readable. And a lot of the things in the book are so universal. And, um, 
that was one of the things that I was wondering is, do you keep a journal or did you keep a journal while you were on the campaign trail? Because it's there's some things that you're like, wow, you thought that was a good memory. Yeah, it was helpful to go back. I talked with my body woman, Emily, quite a bit afterwards, but the, the best journal was Google Cal. You know, I would go back and go through my days and see these days like, that's 4 a.m. and ended at midnight and just kind of, oh, oh yeah, I went there. Oh yeah, I went there. I'd find like random notes on my phone. I was not very good at journaling along the way. I wish I would have been better at journaling, but I was also writing the book while we were on the campaign trail. So a lot of it was making its way into early drafts. Like just capturing moments as they happened and such. Oh, you'd have these like hilarious moments and I would look to Emily and I'd be like, don't let me forget that. This is, you know, this was your life. You get off a bus and on the bus were journalists. And then like you get off and there's all these cameras and staffers and everything you do is on camera. And that's what I wanted people to feel in the book was just like that pressure of always being on. I feel like your story has such universal experiences in it. Some, you know, housing insecurity. You know, I grew up working class as well. Enormous student debt, limited freedoms. There's a part of me that just can't help but wonder what your current self would say to your younger self who was in such a state of shame and fear around those things. Is there, is there a message you would send young Chastin to just be like, oh. you know, your, hey, it gets better message, but to yourself? Yeah, I, someone asked me in one of the first interviews about the book, something I wasn't expecting. They asked about, um, you know, you write about suicidal thoughts. Mm. And I said, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, people with positions of power don't really talk about that. Pe- you know, people don't really open up about mental health. And and they asked me, so why did you stick around? Hmm. Why did you hang on? And I, I know that I so desperately wanted to know what good felt like because everything, everything felt like a lie. Everything was, you know, I'm going to do this to impress my parents. I'm going to be on the honor roll um, to, to impress my parents. I'm going to be in 4-H so I can blend in with like the roughneck boys and so nobody beats me up and everyone sees me as, you know, a good country boy. And I'm going to do everything that I feel like I can do to blend in. And it, it just all felt like such a lie. And I just wanted to know what, what it felt like on the other side. What would good feel like? What, it would, what would it feel like to just know who I am and feel good about it instead of always trying to be something that other people wanted me to be? And now that I know what good feels like, you know, if I could go back and, and look at that kid and, and put my hand on his shoulder and just tell him what good feels like, the way love feels like when someone sees you for who you are and when your family embraces your quirkiness and your awkwardness and they love. I was so afraid to like dance, to share. And like, I know I did it in front of my mom a lot, you know, like, but then I always felt like, is she ashamed of me? Is this bad if I like sing show tunes or laugh at Ellen DeGeneres on TV? Or, you know, it was all just like this constant shame and fear. And like, now that I am surrounded by this family that loves me and this husband who loves me and in a job that makes me feel fulfilled and I get to go to bed at night, knowing like I'm, I'm doing the work that makes me feel good. I guess I would just tell young Chastin, like, just you wait. I mean... I know you're thinking about like, hold on, buddy. <laughs> honestly, you know, it's because when it's good, it's it's so good. I love what you said in your book when you said I spent most of my life believing I'd keep these stories locked up forever. 
often feeling that they wouldn't, they would be what prevented me from being anything other than broken. Yeah. I just, I, I tear up thinking about that. But don't we all feel, because we live in a society that tells us if it's not golden, it's broken. And it's, you know, oh, you have student debt, broken, medical debt, broken. You got your heart broken, broken. You know, broken person. You have cancer, you're broken. I mean, I think of all of the things that even my own, my family feels, right? That you are, you are not a, a full human being. And that's just not, it's not true. And I felt so free when I was finally like, you know what? I've got a lot of student debt and I've got a lot of medical debt. And, uh, you know, people have broken my heart and taken advantage of me. And I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up until five years ago when I went back to grad school. You know, I... It's not a shameful thing at 26. But how often are we told that you should feel shameful for not having it all figured out? Right. But I think there's so much in your story of of even like how you were looking for a significant other that was just like, oh yeah, guys at 22 aren't into that. That time in life, you know, cause you go on these dates and, and you're like, what did you do? And they're like, oh, I went to law school and now I, you know, I'm a lawyer at doobity doop ampersand and whatever. And like, I, you know, like, like, oh, that's cool. I'm, um, I'm renting my apartment on Airbnb and I'm a <laughs> teacher and I've got like a hundred grand in debt cause I went to the emergency room. And we're so often just made to feel like all of those things, that means you've messed up. And it's not true. All of those things are so uniquely American. Right. Well, and I think that there's an aspect of your story that is so, it's an American story. It's an American success story. It's a story of someone who has moved from that place of shame and fear and self-loathing to a place of pride and self-esteem and that's one of those things that i'm like if you can find the key that cracks that particular code chastin i mean you'll be teaching at a lot of places including harvard and i i just think it's so cool like how cool is it that you were having all these instabilities and insecurities and now you're teaching as a fellow at harvard <laughs> and there's internet rumors that you're a multi-millionaire like what <laughs> what sucks about that right of that we have a quite a few student loans to pay off before we yeah, we'll work on that but I, I would just i the reason i was a little tardy to this uh, is because i was doing an event over at harvard and you can see in the students faces when you talk about these things you know i'm i'm there as a fellow with journalists and folks who've worked on campaigns for decades and wow. i'm just talking about a very different approach to politics my experience in politics but you can also see it reflected in the faces on that screen of many young people who understand that they are already being dealt a losing hand. Uh, and if we don't tackle those issues and if we don't do it in a way that makes people feel like they belong, then we're all on the losing end. So this is your first book. Yeah. I, I can't help but wonder, was, was writing this book kind of like a birthing experience where you like, okay, okay, after that's over, I don't want to do that again, or I can't wait to do that again. Like people have different experiences about their first book. I did not think I could write a book. And so, you know, when people, the publisher, you know, the agent, they're all pushing you to write a book. And I just did not feel, again, like political spousing, I just didn't feel like I could, I could do it. And I ultimately just wrote a book my way. And I was really nervous that people wouldn't like it because I, I felt this pressure, sort of the same way I felt the pressure to be a certain type of person on the campaign trail stepping into you know books my husband wrote 
an amazing book, which was like reviewed as like the best political memoir since Barack Obama's. It was like, okay, that's not who I am. And I'm not going to write a book like that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to use five adjectives to describe like the wind, the morning. But he I wrote his book. Right. I mean, that's the thing is you wrote your book. You wrote his book. I wrote my book. And and I think to know me is to know that I'm um, a little all over the place. I'm pretty loud. You know, I love entertaining people. And I, and I wanted people to feel like, OK, if we were like going out to get coffee or we're getting a drink and you're sitting across from me and you were just like, so like, what's your life? And I finally found power in my own voice. Um, not just the story, but my voice. So like, this is the book I'm going to write. And I want people to just feel like they're getting to know me and I'm telling them stories. And I, and I really hoped that it would be like a, a breezy read, a quick read, and just like punch you in the gut with the feelings and then like move on and go to something else, you know, and like, this is my life. And it's not, it, it's not uh, well packaged. There's not like a, a pretty little bow on top, you know? And I feel like people don't write books like that. You know, it can be muddy and sticky and confusing and, and awkward. And, and I, I wish I would have had that book when I was younger. And so that's just absolutely the book that I wanted to write. And I did, and I'm glad my husband encouraged me to do it. And I'm so glad my editor saw that. And yes. you know, people believed in that. Beyond that, I hope um, if you haven't picked up the book, I would love for you to read it. I would love for you to give a copy to a young person who might benefit from it. And then I'll go right back to what I said at the beginning. You can save lives if you're willing to tell people that you're going to fight for those lives. And so we all have a responsibility as allies. I think that's what this book is at its core, is just a message of allyship and showing up for other people and how we can influence other people's stories and lives. So um, please tell the people that you love, that you love them um, and that you were there for them. I will never forget a friend. I was sitting at West End Beach talking to a friend, coming out to a friend. And I just remember her saying like, I'll fight like hell for you. Mm. And, I, and the, what happens when we tell people that? So thank you, Elon, for having me. Uh, oh. The Writer Series, thank you for inviting me. It's been great. Such a treat to have you, Chastin. Such a treat to be in conversation with you again. And I so look forward to your next book. And I just thank you so much for being here. That was Chastin Buttigieg talking with Elon Cameron. And you're listening to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. Coming up in the second half, two friends from opposite sides of the political aisle talk about the book they wrote, documenting the road trips they took together across the country. listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. 
founder of the year-long book festival held in the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. Christopher Haw and Jordan Blaschik are friends. Chris is a Democrat and Jordan is a Republican. When they became friends several years ago, this didn't seem that strange, but these days being friends with those with whom you disagree politically is more difficult. Chris and Jordan decided to write a book about a series of road trips they took together crossing the country and talking with people all across the political spectrum. It's called Union, a Democrat, a Republican, and a search for common ground. Chris and Jordan appeared at a virtual National Writers Series event and spoke with Detroit News columnist Neil Rubin. Neil started by asking them, so who's the better driver? <laughs> oh man, that's a matter of debate. Jordan, who do you think? Oh, I mean, there's an obvious answer here. Chris was the only one who got two speeding tickets. So, well, he didn't actually get the tickets, but pulled over twice. So uh, I, I clearly win. Unbelievable. <laughs> Although, and again, I don't want to give away too much of the book because it's a bargain at twice the price. But one of you, as I recall, wound up beaching the car in a mud flat in Kansas. Who would that right. be? All right. So we'll, <laughs> okay. we'll leave this question as undecided. <laughs> but uh, I thought I would start with the writing process for Union. A lot of our regulars are readers hoping to be authors or authors hoping to be published. But just by way of a little bit of background, tell us how you happened to find yourselves in law school at Yale, which is where you met and all of this started. Well, first, thank you so much for hosting us tonight. Chris and I really wish we could be there in person. We were, we were so looking forward to this event, I think more than all others. And Chris has a special connection to the area. So it was deeply meaningful to, to be invited to this. So uh, to answer your question, I think Chris and I, um, one of the things that bound us as friends early on was we, we wanted to have kind of varied, interesting lives. And Chris is a writer by trade. I'm not a writer, but it's something that I've always wanted to do. It's a huge part of, of what I love. And somehow that led us both to Yale Law School. Yale Law School has this great tradition of law students going off and doing everything but practicing law. And uh, that, that really drew Chris and I in. So when I was leaving the Marine Corps, I decided I was gonna go there. And when Chris was leaving the State Department, he also decided to head over to Yale. And our first year together as friends, we spent a lot of time talking about books we, we loved and uh, things that we wanted to write in our futures. And when we started these road trips, there was no book in mind, but about a year and a half into these trips, one day we just realized that uh, there was a story we wanted to tell and a book was the best way for us to get that story out. Yeah, Jordan, you're now a professional writer, so you, you're selling yourself short now. But yeah, no, I, it's amazing. Good stories find you. Um, I've been trying to write something meaningful for quite some time. I've been a speech writer before coming to law school and I thought great meeting uh, there. Uh, I had spent time in newsrooms and, and I enjoyed being on the beat. I enjoyed uh, the day-to-day -day reporting, um, but I was looking for something larger. And, and I, I had pitched to myself because I never got further than that stories about how poets make great statespeople, statesmen and women, um, or other kinds of books like that. And it just, it never really was happening until I met this guy, Jordan. And, and we, we started taking these road trips truly on a lark, truly uh, with no agenda other than getting from point A to point B with as, with as much adventure between in between as possible. And like Jordan said, the more we talked, yeah, uh, the more we talked, uh, the more we experienced, um, the more places we had a chance to visit and see for ourselves, uh, the more the more we uh, we sort of realized that the story was emerging and that there was something to say. 
and it really was was not just our friendship, but the people we met along the way that really inspired us to put pen to paper, so to speak, and apparently open our mouths as widely as possible. <laughs> well, yes, and it all starts with you're on campus. Jordan needs to get to Los Angeles, I think, for both a job and a family wedding. And uh, there was a particularly obnoxious group discussion at a bar in New Haven. And uh, that sort of moment seemed to inspire Jordan to spontaneously say, hey, Chris, come along on this drive with me. And for you just as spontaneously to say, sure. So if that had been a less annoying evening, would this book have even happened? Quite likely not, to be perfectly frank. Uh, I think Jordan and I, I mean, this was 2016 and Jordan and I had met in 2015 uh, at a time when it didn't feel so strange to be uh, friends across the aisle. It was not the first thing that came came to mind when we met up to grab a drink and get to know one another. You know, like Jordan said, it was about living adventurous lives. It was about, it was about literature. It was about what we wanted to do with our futures, where we come from, we're both Californians. But as 2016 got closer and closer and the, and the election neared, that started to change dramatically. And, uh, and not only were we sort of starting to wrestle with the fact that we had, we had developed this friendship across the aisle in, in this world that now seemed like it had, didn't want that to be true, but the entire campus was alive with politics and it wasn't necessarily the most productive of conversations. <laughs> time and time again, it just sort of uh, um, was reduced down to yelling or um, misunderstanding or just simply not listening. And I think Jordan and I reacted very uh, similarly in some, in some ways to that uh, climate. You know, neither of us enjoyed it that much. Uh, Jordan uh, is a bit of a is a bit of a debater. He's a bit of a, a verbal pugilist. Uh, so he, you know, went full full force into it. But I think he was frustrated by it. And I went very quiet because I didn't think I knew what was going on. I didn't think I had enough data to really say, you know, where the country was or what was about to come in 2016 in November. And so, you know, when Jordan, yeah leaned over, slapped me on the shoulder, said, hey, do you want to go on a road trip? You know, we both were speaking up here to, to, so that we could hear each other over the din of this conversation. It seemed like a great idea because I needed to see it for myself. And Neil, you can, you can appreciate this as a journalist. You know, I wanted to go out there with an open notebook and, and see it for myself before I said anything about where the country was or where we were headed or, or whether or not a friendship like Jordan and I was, was supposed to exist in 20, 2016. Yeah, I do appreciate that. I have lived in a couple of places, Detroit, Las Vegas, which is where I came here from, where all too often, and we see it in political reporting, you see reporters show up, go to one diner or maybe two, look out the window of his hotel, take a couple notes, and come back with a story about the gambling mecca in the, in the desert or whatever the, you know, whatever the cliche and the obvious observation is. How quickly after you guys turned the key and took off, did you start thinking, and, and it's not like you'd grown up in a treehouse, but did you start thinking, hey, this is a little bit different world than maybe I thought it was? It's a, that's a great question. That first road trip, we didn't have a story in mind. And so we weren't out looking to meet people. We really wanted to go explore kind of the national parks. So we ended up driving across the Northern route and just by happenstance, we, we would end up meeting people, have conversations, but they're all very small, short, except for one sort of long incident with a Idaho State Trooper, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. And, and so the, the real story of that trip was 
the ability for Chris and I, for Chris and me to have our own conversations together and to get to a much deeper level of understanding, to probe our shared values and to talk about hard issues uh, without this need to win each argument. And that was the magic of that first road trip. And second, there, you know, there's something really beautiful about this country when you see it from the road. And so as we got away from the noise of politics, we're able to appreciate the more beautiful aspects of the country that so often get, get lost in sort of the, the shouting matches of, of politics today. Um, so that first road trip was, was really about our friendship, getting to this deeper understanding with politics and realizing that um, we, co we could have better conversations if, if we um, had the time and space for it. Um, it was on the second road trip where we swung through Yuma, Arizona to watch uh, Air Force One uh, land at the Yuma Air Station. And then from there went to a Trump rally, hung out with protesters afterwards, that that insight about you know, the media was really missing some of the deeper, more complex stories on the ground, that they were being distorted by the, by the sort of simplistic, dualistic narratives um, that uh, made us decide we really wanted to explore these, these stories, these, uh, these issues on the ground in a much deeper, uh, more nuanced way. At what point did you sit down to write? Did you wait until after the, you know, until the, the trips were over or did you start writing on the fly as you were doing it? How did that work out? Hmm. That's a great question. So we are writing trailed the, the project by a few months, but we started writing pretty much right away. Um, the minute we knew we were writing a book, the minute Jordan called me and said, Hey, why, what if we write a book about this? We started to actually piece together stories. Um, and, you know, so by the time we were with Pete, which, who, which was our third road trip driving with him, um, we were already working on a, on a chapter about Page, Arizona, where we, uh, th that was one of those happenstance chapters where we came across this, uh, this gun range in rural uh, Arizona that turned out it was, it was ran entirely by Marines who sort of ushered us into this whole different world. And because Jordan shared this sort of very important identity with them and they said, come on in, you know, see our world. And they, they let us actually stay uh, for an enlistment ceremony of one of their cousins um, later that night. And it was a really powerful experience. And we started writing about it as soon as we possibly could. And to a certain extent, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to prove my journalistic credentials to you here, Neil, but I was also taking notes the whole way along. Um, and I love, I love the phone as a note-taking device because it reminds me of what Joan Didion said about her big dark sunglasses where she could observe without anyone ever noticing that she was observing. It's when you're typing on this thing, everyone thinks you're, you're, you're texting, you know, that you, you couldn't possibly be, be keeping, keeping track of the conversation after you've told them that you're a journalist, of course. And, and so I had all these pages and pages of notes that, that Jordan and I then started to pour over and say, okay, where's the story here? And what, you know, what matters about this experience? And do you remember this? And, and then, and did that come before that? And, and we started to write out of that, but uh, I'll, I'll stop filibustering here. Jordan, Jordan, does, does that track with your experience of our writing process? Um, yeah, definitely. And the, the only two things I would add were, um, I think that first chapter, Page Arizona, we probably spent like nine months on. It, we poured over that thing like dozens and dozens of times. And then by the time we got to the end of the book, we, we did our last road trip, which accounts for the last third of the book, that one trip. And uh, we had like three months, I think, to finish the entire last third of the book. And so we raced through the ending, which I think is actually our most polished, because by that point, we had really just figured out our writing style. We had figured out the, the sort of structure at every chapter, and it just flowed very naturally. We knew exactly what we were going to say. And so that, that last, I think, five chapters uh, were written in the span of three months relative to the first one. And the second thing I'd say is our actual process per chapter 
was um, this great blend, I think, of our two strengths. So Chris's great strength is he's a beautiful writer. All the uh, pretty passages in the book come from Chris. Uh, the flowery language, the beautiful dramatic uh, descriptions of the landscape, those are all Chris. And I really like the kind of social science and the world of ideas. And so as we wrote each chapter, one of us would kind of start and create the bones and the next person would go through and add a lot of the meat. And we would go back and forth, adding kind of the, the parts that we cared about into the chapter and then editing over and over and over again until the voices evened out. So we had one consistent voice throughout. And it was in that process of going back and forth that I think we were able to find common ground to the title because you know, we had to write things in a way that we both agreed with. And as we saw things out on the road, often we disagreed. And so the writing process itself was this amazing way for our uh, Chris and me to reconcile our two views um, and come to a better understanding of each other and what we saw out on the road. Well, I know, you know, you had some sort of major policy disagreements along the way that you discuss in the book. It's one of the things that makes it so valuable. What were some of the disagreements uh, that you might've had just in terms of what you saw or how to interpret it? Great question. So actually when we saw things on the road, often we saw them in the same way. Um, and that was very heartening to us. We would see something, we would discuss it afterwards and uh, we were able to have a common set of facts, which I think is so rare today. It's so rare that in any political discussion, people have the same foundation of, okay, we saw the same thing. Now, how do we interpret it? And it was in the interpretation that we often had disagreements and we would weight things different ways. But those were very productive conversations because I could understand where Chris was coming from and vice versa. And it allowed us to wrestle with, okay, why do we have different priorities or why do we weight things differently? And that's way more interesting than arguing over facts, which I I feel like the vast majority of politics today is just, you know, arguments over what actually happened. Yeah. Did you ever worry that this was a bit of a risky project in that you might not be able to make up at some point? You might have a permanent cataclysmic fight that torpedoed your friendship. Yes. Yeah, the answer is absolutely. Consistently, in fact, were at least two fights that we detail and, and actually probably more, uh, Jordan, if we put our heads together, I bet we could come up with at least three or four others where we would start talking about an issue and we were using this sort of early language that we had developed to, to get along and then something would happen that would lead us down this path of, of anger and uh, not listening and yelling and um, that would get us to this place where both of us would would simultaneously, and this goes to the process question you want to see inside both of our heads, where we were both thinking, if I could only get out of this car right now, I would not look back. And fortunately, on our first biggest fight, this happened in the middle of nowhere, Nevada. We were driving from Page, Arizona, which I referenced earlier, towards Mono Lake. Um, and we had this huge fight about the Trump rally that we had seen a couple nights before and, and the policies that were sort of swirling um, in the car uh, after that. And we were yelling at each other. Uh, I was driving. I, for, I forgot that I had my foot on the accelerator and we were just flying over these hills and in, in, in rural Nevada. And, and it ended with, you know, something along the lines of, I can't believe you feel that way. And what does that mean? And then silence. And in those moments, we absolutely would have walked away. I have no doubt about it if we could have. But the thing is that in the middle of nowhere, Nevada, you're hundreds of miles from the nearest airport. Uh, you're hundreds of, you're even hundreds of miles from the nearest, you know, Greyhound station, I imagine. I mean, this, this was really rural places. And, and we were very fortunate that that was where we had some of our fights, that we were in this car flying, in this case, towards Mono Lake going north, because it allowed us to go through this sort of grieving process for the fight. 
it allows us to go, I'm so angry. I can't believe he thinks that I got to get out of here to, uh, man, I wish I had said that slightly differently. Cause that would have really got stuck it to him to, you know, maybe that thing Jordan said wasn't so bad and maybe I shouldn't have yelled. And then you start thinking about, um, you know, all the, th- all the ways in which this friendship has grown, you know, the fact that, uh, when the tear gas canister started flying in Phoenix, Jordan, you know, pulled me down, was, was, was there to save me. And, um, or with, if it was late at night and Jordan was tired, I would drive or vice versa. And you, and you start remembering that there's a friend on the other side of that fight. And by the time you actually have a chance to leave the car, by the time you're near Mono Lake or you're in Reno or, or the next, uh, location that you can get out of the car, you don't want to get out of the car. Uh, you, you found, you found reason to continue. You found reason to say something along the lines of, look, I, I, I love you, man. I mean, that was a big phrase for us to sort of summon, summon the ability to say, this matters to me. You matter to me. I'm still angry. Uh, we haven't resolved this, but I care about you. Uh, and that really came from the, from the fact that we couldn't walk away. And that's a big lesson that we underline. We try to say this every time that, that just keep at it, keep coming back to the table because it, it, it's worth it in the end. You alluded to it, you know, as maybe being as recent as 2015, but how far back would we have had to go where it was taken as obvious that two political op- opposites could coexist in a Volvo S60 for, you know, 5,000 miles or whatever it was you drove. When did that become an anomaly? That's a really good question. I don't entirely know. It certainly felt like that happened in 2016 for the two of us. Uh, You know, Jordan and I like to talk about the fact that we both came from institutions that privilege a higher value than partisanship. So Jordan obviously was in the Marines and in the Marines, Democrats, Republicans, those who don't care, all the above um, serve together under the same flag in the same uniform. And, and it's, it's about, you know, what you do for the, for the team and, and for the mission than more than it is who you voted for. And my own experience at the State Department, you know, the job was pitched to me as an opportunity to write in a way that would allow you to quote Kennedy and Reagan in the same speech, yeah. that diplomacy was bigger than any partisanship, that you know, we might be Democrats, we might be Republicans, but we have a higher American mission to to carry forward. And so I think we were primed for for bipartisan friendship, for to try to ignore uh, one difference in favor of finding other similarities. And but I will say that in 2015, it didn't it didn't that didn't feel strange. You know, that wasn't something that we would write a book about, say, or or trumpet, because I don't think many people felt like that was transgressive. But slowly over 2016, 2017, that, that started to change, at least in Jordan and I's lives, or at least my own life. And it felt very important to say, no, you know, we can have friendships that transcends partisanship. We share values that are bigger than blue and red. Uh, and it was interesting how, you know, I mean, obviously that was a crucial attitude and attribute to take into this project. But I was struck reading how the experience time and again brought out important facets of who you both are. The Trump rally afterwards, the tear gas starts flying and Chris says, let's go in. You know, hey, I'm a journalist. What's going on here? Let's let's go see what's going on. <laughs> and Jordan, the Marine, the leader, the protector says, if anything gets too wild, you follow me out. Am I overreacting to that or is that indicative of who the two of you are and how that played out in this project. 
Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's pretty accurate. Chris, um, the you know the eternal journalist, always wanted to go to the scene, and I was typically the the one arguing for caution in various circumstances. Though there were occasions where that was flipped, and my more adrenaline-seeking uh, side came out. And I, I think in the book we do get into some of the deeper aspects of who we are. I think Paige Arizona at the military enlistment, which Chris described, is a moment where Chris really learned some deep insight about me and what I was wrestling with having left the military and the emotions that were coming up for me. And later on in the book, for instance, in Tulsa, I developed a real insight into Chris's psyche and his beliefs and value systems and where they came from. And, you know, those are the things that I think really bound us together as friends. And also, kind of shapes one of the more important lessons of the book, which is, you know, everybody has something deeper about themselves that they value or prize or uh, makes up who we are beyond our political tribes. And no one I know says, you know, first among all the things about me, I care that I'm a Republican or that I'm a Democrat. And it was when we understood those deeper things about each other that we were able to develop a lot more empathy for where the other person was coming from. Chris could understand why I didn't like hearing America talked down about or called racist because it meant something deep to me that this country is, is good because I had friends who died for it. And I learned a lot about Chris and his sense of values and empathy when we explored a lot of the racial and socioeconomic history of this country. And I got insight into how he grew up, the son of an activist mother who uh, grew up reading uh, literature from the Black Panthers. And that shaped his worldview. And it gave me a lot deeper empathy for his worldview. And so I think those, those deeper things about each other were very formative in, in kind of getting to the point where we could talk past uh, politics and get to kind of the deeper issues that, that we both cared about. Did it also help to see things that sort of didn't fit the easy script? In Arizona, the John Brown Gun Club, which was left-leaning, which is not what you expect of militias and such, or just you saw respectful discussions, animated but respectful discussions outside that rally. You know, as a reader, I thought, aha, there's elements of this that I'm not seeing. Just as witnesses, did it open you up to sort of broader things, broader possibilities that, you know, your assumptions might not be 100% spot on? 100%. If there's one thing that I could transmit to people um, who, who are thinking about reading Union or are here today is that this country is far more complex than you could ever imagine uh, when you see it from the road and when you study it like the way that Jordan and I did. And that is a very important point. Um, it changes a lot of how I look at our politics. Um, you can't help but be humble in the face of all this diversity, all this complexity, whether it's Pete wearing the Make America Great Again shirt and then saying that he wished the president talked more about climate change from the cabin of his diesel engine truck driving between Las Vegas and Slidell, which almost makes your brain, brain explode, or whether it's the, the Trump voter um, who had spent you know, 40 years in prison, grew up in Detroit, African-American woman um, who had her own reasons, or whether it's being at, uh, in Yuma and seeing uh, the ways in which uh, sometimes the story from places is all about the anger and the yelling in, in each other's faces when if you just take three steps to the left or the right, you're going to see respectful dialogue going on um, between someone holding a, a love Trump's hate sign and a, and a maggish sign. And what that does to me is it makes me say, I, I got a lot to learn. 
when I'm talking to Jordan, I want to pick up knowledge. Uh, I want someone who's going to poke holes in my worldview so that I can build them back stronger. And that all, I think, emanates from this, this central thesis, this, this assumption that we are complex, that we contain multitudes, that we are impossible to categorize with a sentence or two. We're just about out of time. And uh, Jordan, Chris, thank you for tonight. Um, well, Neil, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. And thank you to the National Writer Series, to everyone who, who took some time to listen tonight. Thank you. I wish we could have been there with you in person. And hopefully uh, next year at this time, we will. That was Christopher Haw and Jordan Blaschek talking with Neil Rubin. Chris and Jordan's book is called Union, A Democrat, a Republican, and a Search for Common Ground. In the first half of the program, we heard from Chastin Buttigieg talking with Elon Cameron. Chastin's memoir is called I Have Something to Tell You. Learn more about the National Writers Series and upcoming events at nationalwritersseries.org. And listen to past programs at interlockandpublicradio.org. For Interlock and Public Radio, I'm Linnea Melcarrick.